Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Dan Varga. He's the owner and founder of the Hungarian Butcher, which is up in the Linworth neighborhood of Columbus, Ohio here. The Hungarian Butcher opened a handful of months ago, kind of been a passion project of Dan's for several years, and he finally got to opening it. We don't really have a whole lot of butcher shops in Columbus. I mean, you have the butcher and the grocer, Saddleburg, which is in one of the North Markets. Actually, they're in both the North Markets now. And there's a couple other places, but we don't have a whole lot of kind of neighborhood, old school butcher shops that your parents or grandparents probably remember kind of visiting. And I really wanted to have a butcher on the podcast just to talk about different cuts of meat and, and how butchery has evolved and the challenges that are facing butchery because it's a big part of the food and hospitality industry. We had Wesley Grubbs on CDC over at Chapman's Eat Market, and he had some background in butchery too as well from his time and his career. But I really wanted to have just somebody who is a dedicated butcher currently too. So reached out to Dan and was able to set it up. And, you know, Dan is also very close friends with uh, Chef Stefan Medias, who's the founder of Wario's. So recently, a couple weeks ago, they had a pastrami special over on the weekends at Wario's. And that was done by the Hungarian butcher that was smoked by them uh, and incorporated into the Wario sandwich. So you see some crossover and, and collaboration too as well. But super interesting episode. Like I said, I really wanted to have a butcher on and we talk about Dan's career as a chef here in Columbus. He actually worked a, a little bit outside Columbus too as well. And we talk about, you know, why he wanted to open the butcher shop, how eventually he got to that point um, where, you know, he decided to go all in and, and open it and what they've been doing and different challenges and where they're at now. You know, they ship stuff to different people that are looking for, you know, Hungarian style foods that they do there too as well. They do on Tuesdays usually do a Taco Tuesday kit that you can order. It's kind of a take-home kit. They were doing some stuff with one of the Italian restaurants downtown for a little bit too as well, I think on Wednesdays, but that has ended. So keep an eye out for more stuff from them. You can follow them on Instagram at The Hungarian Butcher. Feel free to reach out. They're open Tuesday through Sunday. Sunday, I think they're like 10 to 4, but most of the other days they're like 11 to 7 or something like that. Um, the only days that they're closed on Monday. It's right up in the Linworth area. But without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Dan Varga, the owner, founder of The Hungarian Butcher here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast. I wanted to have a butcher on. I want to get into butchery and everything like that too in a little bit, but I definitely wanted to have a butcher on, started having people on kind of around the edges of kind of the restaurant hospitality industry. And and I think butchery is something that a lot of people don't know much about aside from, you know, they probably just think chop up an animal and then it's for sale. And I think there's more that goes into that. So you also worked as a chef before you opened your butcher shop. So I like to start at the beginning with everybody, go all the way back to how you got started. I mean, I know you're from Parma originally, which I have some family up there. Yeah, I was born in Parma, but uh, I grew up kind of out west a little bit until I was 13. I grew up in Arizona, Tucson, in California for four years uh, outside of uh, Orange County. Um, just for like four years. And I moved here when I was 13. I kind of started cooking because I grew up with my mom always cooking in the kitchen, coming home and just whipping together stuff. And she was really good at it. Plus my grandmother, being of Hungarian descent, made everything from scratch every year. The holidays were a really big deal. Lots of food, lots of help. And then it also started cooking because it got me, you know, late. Uh, so figured that out quick. And I kind of ran with that you know, as a teenager, it progressed. I went to Southeast Career Center when I was at Linda McKinley, graduated in 96. I did the food service program there, excelled in everything. I had a 4.2 average. It was um, easy for me, always has been. Got an apprenticeship when I was 16 through the Southeast Career Center with Harold Smith, who used to own a Cajun restaurant back in the day called Harold's Cajun Glory. And it was on Durker and Henderson, it was in the old Mama Mimi's place, right next to it. it used to be Subway, but now it's UA Pub or something like that. But, and this guy went straight from Lafayette, Louisiana. He was mean, but he made really good etouffee and Cajun food and taught me how to do that. Then I apprenticed under Ziggy out of Spock at the Athletic Club of Columbus. Then I was kind of doing the Columbus State thing, but realized I was making more money and getting a better education while I was working at the athletic club and then I kind of just dropped out of school and just decided to teach myself so from there I worked for Hyde Park for a number of years Cameron Mitchell for a number of years the refectory G Michael's burgundy room 
a number of different places that I could go and kind of teach myself on how to do everything from being a pastry chef to doing everything else. And uh, it kind of just spiraled into uh, being a butcher. You know, I loved breaking down meat. And once I got my first whole animal in, I was like, oh, this is a lot of fun. It progressed. I started a little butcher shop in my basement. So I had made a production room with a little butcher block. I had a grinder, I had a stuffer, and a meat slicer. I even had a bandsaw down there. And then the other room I set up for curing meats. I have a bedroom size basement downstairs that is just filled with cured meats right now. <laughs> you said you had a 4.2 GPA. No interest in following your dad's footsteps because he was like a journalist for the, the Plain Dealer. Yeah, yeah. He was a journalist for The Plain Dealer. Uh, he has a master's in journalism. He had a doctorate in uh, social science. And then also he had a law degree at one point. I don't know. I just never wanted to go. Once I started cooking, it was it. That's all I ever wanted to do. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, my dad was a little upset at first. He didn't think I was going to be any good at it. And then the first time I cooked some kind of chicken for me, he was like, oh. And now he's my biggest supporter, you know. With helping your grandmother with her recipes and stuff, my grandmother, Polish, all her stuff, any recipe that we have from her, it's written down, but it's it's pretty loose. There's interpretation there. You know, it's kind of like pinch of this, pinch of that. And it's like, that's not really recreatable kind of thing. She would hold my hand out and I'd have to like fill it with the salt and the pepper. She'd like, use three of those and then taste it. Oh, it needs more, it needs more of this, it needs more of that. Always. With the paprikash and the cabbage rolls and everything. When you're cooking like a, a family, I feel like a family recipe, it's it's an all-day thing. It's an event, yeah. It was we would prep for, for Christmas the day after Thanksgiving. And she would have like 40 quart stock pots of cabbage rolls just lined up in the on the floor of the garage because it was cold enough in Westerville where we could just keep everything in the garage. And that was our walk-in refrigerator. So you go out there, grab a couple cabbage rolls out of a pot, grab some paprikash, grab some, you know, mushrooms and rice, whatever else we would have, throw it in the microwave whenever you come over and that's it. And then there'd be a whole array of cookies and pastries. So you did the vocational kind of school, went to culinary school for a minute, then decided not for you. You wanted to teach yourself. What are your thoughts on culinary school? I usually pretty much ask anybody who's ever been, but somebody in your shop today was like, Tell people before you commit, go work in a kitchen for a little bit. Spend for your first two years in a kitchen in an environment you think you want to be in. And then that'll tell you if you're ready for it or not. And if after that you really enjoy it and you want to further your education, you need that piece of paper, then go to culinary school, but go to a good one. Columbus State is a great culinary school. And then, you know, obviously you have Hyde Park, New York up there, those guys, Johnson, Wales, which is kind of tapered off. If you're really committed and you just want to do it, it's a lot better just to go work for the chefs you admire and try to work under them and learn from them. And at least you're going to get paid something to do it. And then you're not stuck with that big bill at the end of the school year. And I'm just honest. I've had so many kids come through my way. You know, I was, I was a chef for Buca Beppo for a couple of years. It was when I was raising my kids and I had to have, you know, I couldn't just be bopping around. So I was a corporate chef for a number of years. And, and you see a lot of kids come through, teenagers and stuff like that. Or I would go to Bradford, coach as many kids as I could. And that would really, that would tell them, you know, whether they wanted to or not. I mean, I probably hired 50 or 60 kids from Bradford in the late 2000s. Four kids that are still doing it today. Coming out of culinary school and you're hiring those kids, like, did they have a good foundation? There's some chefs that like to hire from culinary schools because they're moldable, right? Like they get a little bit of a foundation and it's like, okay, I can teach them the rest, but they kind of have the basics. Unless they have an on-site restaurant that you'd have to run on a day-to-day op, you know, as a day-to-day operation, you're never going to learn in the classroom the way you're going to learn in the kitchen. You know, you can read about it and you know, and, and watch videos and YouTube and stuff like that. But unless you're actually putting knife to the cutting board and stuff like that, you're not going to learn. You know, it's all, all about repetition and muscle memory at that point. You got to get your reps in. So that's why I suggest to people, you know, when you want to do this, go work, you know, in the environment you want or go work for a fast-paced kitchen that's high volume where you're going to have to crank out numbers and you're going to have to learn speed and efficiency. And if you're good there, then you can be good. I would always hire people that worked at Waffle House as cooks because they have to learn, you know, everything's muscle memory. They, uh, 
everything is an order call system. There's nothing written down, you know, very rarely. And it's, you know, you got to be fast. If you can keep up in the 4am rush, then you can probably work in my kitchen. I mean, you worked at a bunch of different places around Columbus. Like you said, Buca de Peppo, Oscars, Two Cheese, Hyde Park, G. Michaels, Burgundy Room, The Refectory, all those places before you eventually wind up at the Explorers Club. With all the places that you worked at, were you purposely looking for something that you could learn at each stop? Or was it just kind of like, that's the place that was hiring or just life events? When I went from Movie Tavern to Buca, I was kind of coached by... uh... My old chef and his wife, Julie Novak, she used to run CMR for a long time and stuff like that. And uh, they own their own place up in Cleveland called Hail Mary's. She was going to be the, the, the head paisano there or whatever at the Worthington store. And we needed a good chef. And the salary was good. I couldn't say no to the salary. Plus, at the time, two kids being in high school and whatnot, it, was, it made sense. But... And I remember sitting down in that interview with the the corporate chefs and they said, yeah, we've been through 75 managers in three years. And you do the math quick, that's one one chef every three months. So I lasted three and a half years before they finally fired me. When you get like fired as a chef, I mean, I think every chef has been fired or let go at some point, right? Like, is it just kind of like, are you in shock at all? Or are you just kind of like, yeah, whatever, this place is kind of whatever. I mean, that instance... Uh, every Sunday night, well, we were doing 120000 a week in sales, you know. So on a Sunday night, I was supposed to run with the skeleton crew plus do inventory and mindful and all this stuff with like six other cooks. So I'd go get a 12-pack or a 30-pack of PBR across the street and drink it in the walk-in. And then just that, I forgot to throw all the evidence away before I left. So I walk in to go plug in my inventory next Monday, and the GM was like, yeah, I found a bucket of beers in the walk-in. I was like, yeah, I drank all those last night by myself. She's like, by yourself? I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Uh, and she's like, you know you're fired. Yeah, I'm going to go back to bed now. See ya. And then that's when I got the Explorers Club after that. That was a great job. Going there on a regular basis, one of the owners wanted out, and I walked in at the right time and kind of just told them what I thought I would do with the place, and they loved it. Next thing you know, we were popular. What was the concept behind the Explorers Club? Was it like cuisine from all over the world kind of thing? Yeah, well, when they first opened it, it was just to be like a vegan, vegetarian, Caribbean type, almost galaxy cafe-ish. And then when I walked in, I was like, the Explorers Club, I was like, I would explore comfort food from around the world and just take different regions and countries and every month change up the concept. And they loved it. And that's what we ran with. And then with my Hungarian background, plus. The Hungarian village was the next street over. We did Hungarian night once a, once a month. We did Mexican night with my sous chef, Gabby. He makes great food. Why not showcase that? We had fun doing it. Everybody loved it. Though. And it was a way for us to expand our, our mind and our knowledge and learn about different cuisines from around the world. So you're there for like a couple of years, and then you wind up going over to Double Comfort. How did that opportunity come about? Once again, it's just all about knowing people. I got a phone call from... Uh, one of the professors who was at Bradford, and he's like, one of my friends is opening this restaurant, and it's a great concept. It's fried chicken comfort food, but she wants to do a little upscale. And she's taking over the old need space and did my research and cool person. And uh, everything was for like nonprofit. The type of person that uh, does business just to give away all the profits or whatever. Yeah, kind of like a nonprofit in a way. Yeah. So she did that. You know, her husband, they're pretty well off. He's the chief marketing officer for uh, CarMax. So he was doing that for Nationwide for Scott's Lawn before that. So she was just like, ah, I want to do this and get all my profits, you know, to to the shelters around town. As long as we get paid, that's fine. But it was a fun place. And that was another place that I was kindly asked to, to step away from. She fired me in the nicest way I've ever been fired. She sat me down. We were good friends and, and you know, we developed a good relationship. And she's like, Dan, you know, I love you, but you suck to work with right now. And I was just, when I was just starting to try to launch Hungarian Butcher as pop-ups and doing other things like that, she's like, you need to do that full time. So March 15th is your last day. And she gave me like uh, eight weeks, you know, to get everything in order and whatnot. She even tried to help me get investors to get things up and running. But she's like, yeah, and after that, you know, we're done. So she kind of saw that like, your passion was kind of elsewhere kind of thing, but she was in a way cool with it. Yeah. She just gave me that necessary oomph that I needed. 
that's when I, I stepped away and I, uh, I met James Anderson and we started working on Hungarian Butcher. And then that led to me doing pop-ups here and there and then also working for Ray Ray's for a couple of years as an executive chef. Now I'm here. When you started the pop-ups, did you always intend it to start as a pop-up? Because I think it was originally you started at like Tattoo Heads, but then you did some stuff at Platform. I just wanted to be the lead person in charcuterie in Columbus. You know, I wanted to get it up and running. And then North Country came along and they had more funding and, and things like that. And they just got it done faster than I did. And then I, I was a one-man band. It just took longer. So it started as charcuterie, and then I was going through the laws and uh, and everything, realizing what I wanted to do couldn't be done unless I had a whole bunch of capital behind me. So then I just started doing pop-ups with the Hungarian food and making whatever charcuterie I could legally. You know, so smoked sausage, hams, capicola, bacon, all that fun stuff, and sell to the consumer through being a pop-up. But anything dry here requires a lot more certification. Is that like food safety certifications? Yeah, HACCP plans. I have to get things shipped off. Like today, I'm actually shipping things out for samples, salamis and things like that. So I'll do salami, copa. How lengthy of a process is it to get a HACCP plan like in place for something? It's pretty lengthy. First, you have to get the product to where it's shelf stable. Once you do that, then you send it out. Then it's about an eight-week process unless you want to pay double and get it expedited by folks. Uh, and then from there, you got to send that into the ODA. They got to check everything. They get a sample approval, and then and then they send me the official letter. So you're doing the pop-up, and then you go to Ray Ray's too as well, kind of at the, the same time. Put the pop-up on kind of the back burner for a minute. What kind of led to you working at Ray Ray's? I mean, you said you met James Anderson, but were they looking for somebody, or was it just kind of like, hey, what are you doing, or...? He was doing the James Beard dinner with Bill Glover out in New York, and I just knew that he was raising Manglis the hogs, and that's the breed I want to use or I wanted to use uh, for my charcuterie because it's a Hungarian breed. They're known for their charcuterie, you know, qualities, the fat content, the flavor. It all works for charcuterie. So why wouldn't being a Hungarian want to use a Hungarian breed of hogs? You know, and he was one of the only ones in, at the time growing these hogs. And so I called him up and he's like, yeah, I've been looking for somebody to make sausage out of these because I know they're premium. And we got together and I didn't even know he owned Ray Ray's at the time. I just thought he was just a big farm. I come out there to meet him with my guys from I'm So A Double Comfort. I had just developed my bacon rib where I do a cured belly, I cut it like spare ribs, and then we smoke them like regular ribs for three and a half hours. It's a really nice, meaty, boneless rib. So I bring it out to him, not knowing he's Ray Ray. And he, he actually liked it a lot, which is great. And then he's like, yeah, I own Ray Ray. So I'm like, oh, fuck. You just cook ribs for the barbecue guy. So that was my introduction to James. I want to help you on the farm. He was just in the beginning of this farm. We built fences and barns. We fed him by hand, by five-gallon buckets at the time. And I... There was times when I was puking because it was so hot, building fences and things like that. We were getting chased by hogs. You know, it was an adventure. Uh, and then, you know, we started cooking together, and he liked my style of cooking, and it fit in the barbecue. He needed to expand, and my business was kind of just like, at the time, I was like, yeah, I'll put it on the back burner, and I'll help you, you know, open Westerville, and we can open Land Grant, and things like that. You got to participate in the, the James Beard celebrity like chef tour dinner that came to Columbus too. That was like 2018, right? Yeah, I did my duck pastrami on Raj. That was awesome. That was such a fun experience uh, to see all these chefs from around the West and knowing that they're James Beard quality. That's one thing I've always like kind of strived with. James got one while I was helping or while we were working together and stuff like that. But you know, I need one one day. <laughs> I'll get that. In 2019, did you go down to Florida and help open like a Puerto Rican restaurant? I did, yeah, Leipa. Yeah, I moved down there for my wife. Uh, she was ill at the time. She needed a liver and a heart. You know, we knew she was getting towards the end of life. We were trying to either find a heart or just trying to make her happy. Uh, so we moved down there because she loved Florida and she wanted to live there. So we moved there. I got a job uh, with this guy, Jean Toddy. Um, just an ex-architect for the city. 
and he wanted to have this vision. He was half French, half Puerto Rican. And he had his all his mom's and his grandmother's uh, recipes and stuff like that. So I did some consulting. I tried not to be the chef, you know, and I was like, hey, it's too small of an operation that can afford me, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, I'm the executive chef, you know, we're opening up, <laughs> you know. And it went well. It was fun. I love Puerto Rican food. I mean, Mofongo, obviously, I kind of made a name for Mofongo up here in Columbus through Explorers Club when I when I did my Mofongo. Puerto Rican Mofongo is way different than what I was in. Um, but Pernil, Mofongo, you know, all that stuff, we, we did it there. And that was a great restaurant. Um, little 30-seater, right? Right by the water, right next to a brewery. Uh, sunny every day. <laughs> I could go to the beach on my break. But, uh, but you know... My wife got too sick and I needed help and I couldn't take care of her by myself. So I had to move back here. And, and then that's where, you know, I think it was a year later she passed away. After you kind of come back and everything, you know, it's probably roughly around the time COVID starts. Yeah, we got released from the hospital the day COVID, the shutdown happened. So she was in the hospital for like six weeks before because she was actually supposed to get a, a, a liver and she was on the table, and then her heart was bad. And then, so she was in for six more weeks getting healthy, and then on the 23rd of March, she was released. And then from there, we went home, and it was just a roller coaster the whole time. And then in, uh, yes, September 20th, she passed away. It was two days after our 10th anniversary. That sucked. Yeah, I would think so. Did that life event kind of help you put more into the hungarian butcher yeah it made me realize that it was kind of those to get off the pot i mean the only way I, I tried to go back to work for ray rays here and there but it wasn't it wasn't working for me i couldn't take care of Bev at the time i was talking to one of my investors tony and uh and i was like dude i was like i think it's time to get hungarian butcher uh birth and birth. he knew a good group of guys uh, he has uh they all have their MBAs, and I got like five investors that are very business savvy. You know, everybody has their specialty. Uh, so it kind of worked out. Bev looked at Tony and was like, make sure that Dan gets this done, and promised her. And then we uh, got the money through ECDI, and uh, we're able to find this location. And, and finally, you know, yeah, Friday was our six-month anniversary. Yeah, you guys officially opened like, November? Yeah, November 9th we, it was our first day. When you started looking for space, my assumption would be that the first spot you looked was Hungarian Village. No, because I needed something close to Clintonville where I lived. Well, honestly, the first space I looked at was right at the end of my street, Chase Road. Like, there's a shopping center, but now it's as a massage parlor, a cat cafe, and a vape store. So a butcher shop would not have fit in that space. <laughs> but, you know, we looked there, and then we looked over here right next to Borgata. And then while I was driving back from Borgata one day, I saw this place was available. So I called and the price was right. The location was perfect. The demographic fits perfect. You know, all the numbers that were run by my investors, they were like, yeah, this is the place to be. So everything kind of just fell into place after that. Very, very slow. Was it a combination of like the ideal space being obviously square footage, but also probably finances, so lease term, but some aspect of easy to get to or foot traffic or something? Yeah, well, it's we're right next to Cameron's and So that restaurant's been here for 30 plus years. Everybody in this neighborhood knows it. We're on the corner of 161 of Linworth. Once again, a very notable location, easy to give directions to. We're right off of 315. We're 10 minutes from Powell. We're 10 minutes from Dublin. We're you know, in Worthington and seven minutes from Clintonville. So it just kind of made sense. Did you do any other like market research or anything prior to opening? Oh, they did a bunch of market research. Stuff I can't talk about because I don't understand it. There was a lot of numbers thrown around. Yes. <laughs> but for you yourself, I mean, in terms of design, layout of the butcher shop, products that you felt maybe the demographics in the area would be looking for, like, did you do any research in, in that aspect? Stuff that you knew? Well... No, honestly, I just went in there knowing what I could do and what I was going to be able to produce. And kind of like the market research was done when I did my pop-ups for like when I was at Butcher and Grocer for a second. And then two brothers, when they let me rent some spaces there, you know, 
and I was able to realize that, oh, pates sell anything with liver cells, you know, like, that, uh, and that was six years ago. And I saw a lot of liver, hearts, kidneys, anything like that. Anything I put that in my pates and terrines. I never thought we was going to sell as much as they do. I, you know, I have four different terrines and pates on hand at every, you know, any given time. And they sell really well. Um, our Hungarian style sausage, it's called Kurka. It's a liver-based sausage. It's like Udan. It's got rice, shoulder, uh, caramelized onions, dill, liver, heart, kidney in there. And we sell, we got 50 pounds on order this week. When deciding on kind of what you wanted to have in the shop, did you find yourself having to almost edit yourself? Because, I mean, you guys have sausages, cured meats, duck, chicken, pate, like you said, brisket, steak. Like, you guys have a lot of stuff. So did it ever get to a point where you're like, well, hold on, let, let's have like 20 things first, and then we'll like expand once we kind of get in the flow? Uh, we just rotate it out all the time. That's the thing, you know. So we're constantly rotating whatever we have available, and it's – that's the way my brain works. I guess you can say I'm constantly just doing whatever I want. <laughs> so if we have it, let's throw it in the case. If we don't have room, let's hold it. If it's here, you know, we'll put it out over the weekend or something. But that way things are constantly rotating in and out. Um, yeah, I did find myself like last month, like, all right, stop ordering product for weeks. <laughs> you get through what you have because you get too happy. Uh, you know, at one time I had two whole cows two lamb and two pigs in the walk-in. I'm like, all right, let's make stuff now. <laughs> and so we were finally through all that product. Luckily with that, you know, as long as you keep it in the whole animal form, it just dry ages, and it's better. So that's cool. And then I have a couple dry aging cabinets that we're using as well, our curing cabinets. With kind of your rotation system, do you, it's not really going to be, you know, seasonal like a restaurant, but do you look at kind of the calendar and look like Easter's coming up? We want to have this specific thing, or this is going to be Memorial Day weekend. Like today, a Hungarian style Easter cheese that we're going to sell throughout the week. Uh, I got a whole bunch of lamb coming in today and tomorrow, so we're going to be lamb heavy. Uh, you know, I'll stock up on the lamb roast and then also hams. Uh, we took our pre-orders for hams and our lamb roast already. Hungarian sausage, the Hurka cells, and a lot of smoke stuff, and then fresh kielbasa for the Polish people. Um, they come in, and you know they're buying five, ten pounds at a time of the fresh kielbasa and smoked. Um, they ran out twice this weekend alone. So, where do you source your animals from? Like, are there specific people that you want to partner with that you look to partner with? I use Woodruff Farms for like the majority of my hogs and, and beef. Uh, they get blank Angus beef and they grow and they do a great job. And then they're, uh, they're Mangalista hogs. They have a separate farmer working for them doing that. And they're beautiful. And I was also using six buckets, uh, out of new Philly and six buckets grows. She grows some of the best hogs I've ever had, but she's also downsizing because she wants to focus on flowers because they're easy to grow and they don't bite back. <laughs> So we got that. I got Harold Dillon for Shady Grove. He does all my chickens and duck, and then he'll do a lot of produce for me as well. Uh, we use Secura Farms for our Wagyu for Westerville in Kentucky. Salem Farms for our for our lamb, and then Freedom Run Farms, which is out of Kentucky. Uh, so I, I try to use all local products. I don't get anything. If I don't know where the farm is spoken to the farmers, I don't know. I don't buy from them, so. Is raising the animals or farming the animals something that you could ever envision yourself doing since you have some of that experience with James Anderson and Anderson Farms? Or? I've done it. I'm done with it. I did it. I know how to do it. I can I can guide the farmers on how to finish the uh, animals the way I want and on what grains and how I want it done so that I can get the right um, you know end result the way I want. But yeah, I'm not going to be a farmer. I'll make sausage. Since you guys opened, how has the business and kind of the reception been so far now that you're at like your six-month mark? Worthington loves us. It's great. Uh, the reception from Worthington is great. Um, we get a lot of people from Toledo and Cleveland coming down on weekends. Saturdays, we usually have a, a line of 11 right out the door. Uh, and they're all people that will travel from Canton, Akron, Toledo, Cleveland, because the uh, butchers up there have all shut down. It's kind of, a, you know, everybody is getting old and passing away and nobody's passing on, which is sad to see. And that's another reason I opened up Hungarian 
because I saw that happening. I have a son who's 22 that happens to be very interested in what we do and learning his culture. So he works for me. He works right right next to me, you know, Donnie. And uh, and I just wanted to create that family Hungarian butcher shop that you don't see any somebody you know, where his family. I got my niece working for me. My nephew will be working for me in the summertime. My best friend Gabby's still making sausage and doing Taco Tuesday. Tomorrow he's doing ceviche. So he's making the ceviche right So with your son, Donnie, working at the butcher shop and obviously other family members, like you mentioned, is that something you're hoping you get to pass the shop down? Like, I'm sure you'd be okay with it if if eventually you decided like, yeah, I don't want to be a butcher. I don't want to be in restaurants or something like that. But there's part of you that like wants to continue kind of the family lineage, right? Oh, I want to open not just this. You know, I have multiple concepts that I want to open just to kind of create. This is my retirement. There's no other way around it. I want to have a bakery. I want to have a longo shop. I want to, you know, do a nice restaurant concept uh, and then open a couple more butcher shops. Based on kind of the success so far, and they're not, there's not a whole lot of butcher shops in Columbus. I mean, the butcher and the grocer is one that everybody knows. Um, Saddleburg in the North Market Bridge Park. And there's like maybe two or three others. And there's Machalaria and, and Bexley. I mean, it's a small handful. And I mean, you previously said too, like local butcher shop is is a dying art form. With all that in mind, is there an avenue to have, you know, multiple? Columbus is a big place. So like multiple shops, you just have to be really strategic with where you put it. People in Toledo would love for me to move up there. I've, I hear it every day. Like if I went and took over Tokash's shop in, in Toledo, in the, in the Hungarian city or whatever they call it, Hungarian side of town, I guarantee we would be welcome with, you know, open arms and probably be pretty busy. So you're thinking bigger, like you're thinking different cities, not just like multiple locations in one city. Uh, no, I'm thinking more cities. Yeah, because, you know, we're already starting to ship nationwide. I shipped some stuff out to Spokane, Washington last week. Somebody asked me yesterday if, they, if I could ship out to New York. You know, they're up in Buffalo. Uh, so there's a lot of it. Hungarians, uh, are proud, but they don't let you know until they know that there's something to talk Hungarian about, honestly. Like, so, um, it's weird. Well, Columbus has the fifth largest population of Hungarians in the United States. Ohio has the third largest population in the state, uh, of all the states. You know? And after that, it's New York and California, which kind of makes sense. But, you know, there's huge population of, you know, Hungarians in Toledo, Cleveland, Akron, and then Columbus. Um, and and the market's there. With shipping those products, like you just mentioned, is that customers that are looking for you to ship it? Or is it restaurants that are looking? Or Customers. Yeah, these are all old Hungarian people that they can't get to Ohio. And that's the fun part. Is they'll uh, email me in Hungarian and I'm I gotta translate this, and I don't. I don't speak Hungarian very well, like very little. Have you had the opportunity to go to Hungary? Not yet. No, that's another thing that I'm hoping that Hungarian butcher will help me. You know, get to get to Budapest one day and see the markets and go see a real hentesh mudjar, you know, or mudjar hentesh. Is that where your grandmother was originally from? Was Budapest? Yeah, my grandmother was from Budapest, uh, the Pest side. And then um, my great-grandparents are from Transylvania. So my great-grandfather, Attila, he brought everybody over in 56. Which side is which? Because I can't remember what it is. There's the Buddha side and the Pesh side. One side's higher on the river than the other, but I don't remember the demographic split off the top of my head. From what I remember, I think the Pesh side was a little bit more affluent side. Okay. I'm assuming that's the side that's on the higher side, probably. My great-uncle, my, my grandmother's brother, and my grandmother, they grew up with the Gabor twins, Ava and Zaja Gabor, from the actresses, you know, Green Acres and stuff like that. Yeah, so I have pictures of my grandparents with uh, my great uncle with them at like, parties and stuff like that. They grew up as kids, you know, my, apparently my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, somebody babysat them. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. Are you still working on the, the liquor license so you can do Hungarian wine and stuff? Yeah, we're uh, everything's been passed. So they're just waiting on my background check to come back. They lost it, and then they have to find it. So that's any day now. I was hoping to have it by Easter. And that's that's another phone call I have to make. But then it'll just be Hungarian wines. 
Yeah, we're just going to do wines in the beginning. Uh, then we'll apply for a beer license after that goes. Obviously, I don't know if you've been to the shop. I was able to stop in one time and kind of look around, but yeah, um, definitely, you know, you guys started doing obviously the, the Taco Tuesdays and, and stuff like that too. So you guys use pretty much every part of the animal, right? That you guys break down? Yeah, yeah. We use, you know, we, we utilize the bones for stock uh, or we sell the bones for stock or we make dog bones. The ears, all the snouts and everything I use for head cheese and my terrines and jellied meats and whatnot. Uh, yeah, there's not much that we don't use. If we run out of the fat, we have beef, pork, you know, we have beef tallow and pork lard, things like that. We sell, we sell bone broth, chicken stock, uh, chicken salad, ham salad, charcuterie salad. <laughs> we got it all. Is there any difference between breaking down an animal for products that you're going to use in a different product? So mise en place, essentially, or the cuts that you have to do for case presentation? When I go to uh, set up my cases every morning, uh, I just kind of look at what's in the walk-in and what we have. And then, you know, it's like, for me, it's kind of setting up a plate for a special, you know, so everything's about presentation. So I look at what's the best cuts, what's going to sell. I also look at the weather outside, you know, a day like today when it's rainy and gloomy, I know I'm going to sell a lot of cabbage rolls and stuff that people are going to want to roast or braise or things like that. So I'll put out, I'll go short rib heavy, a couple of roasts some nice stuffed chickens, um, you know, things like that. Uh, I've been doing a flank steak that I butterfly and, and I stuff with uh, pickled carrots and cucumbers and rub it with mustard and salt and pepper. And then you tell people to braise it and uh, pickle juice and beef stock. And it's amazing. That was something my mom used to make for me as a kid. And we've been doing that. We sell that a lot. So it, it, it all depends on the day, what it's, what it's like outside, what I have in the walk-in. And then from there, that's when I have juices start so somebody, in theory, somebody could come in every two, three days and like, it's almost like a completely different lineup, right? Yeah. I try to have the same products at all times, but you can ask me, you know, people come in, Hey, can I get a tomahawk ribeye? Yeah. Just let me go grab a quarter side of beef real quick. If you don't mind waiting, I'll break it down in front of you. And we do that a lot. So people love seeing the show and get, you know, getting their cameras out when I call out a whole side of beef or a half of a pig and start sawing away and you see the sweat dripping down my face how fat i really am you know is there an animal that you enjoy in particular that you enjoy breaking down oh pig 100 percent. yeah it's one that's most natural it's one i've done the most uh the beef we're still uh, learning as we go honestly They're, they were a bit intimidating when we first got uh our whole our whole sides in uh just because we weren't ready for that the size of an animal in our walk-in you know we just didn't really have the infrastructure but we've 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 made progress since do you guys break stuff down mostly by hand and then probably have to use a bandsaw at some point there's no bandsaw um it never will be because there's no room for one thing uh and i want to be as old school as i can we you know we have our hand saws and our splitters and things like that so we use them every day and it works it might take us a little longer but um, I, don't know, I just feel like that's the way it should be. Is there any animal that you haven't gotten to butcher or break down, but you want to one day? Even if it's like a, a tuna but or, you know, an antelope or... Well, I've done all sorts of fish. I started out as like fish butcher. At the refectory, I was a fish person. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was a bossonaire. So every day I was breaking down fish left and right. And then before that... When I was working at Hyde Park, it was a seafood concept called Metropolitan. So we had 14 different types of fish that we brought in, pretty much whole carcass all the time. So tuna and things like that we've done, sturgeon, and you name it, flounder, blah, blah, blah. Uh, as far as animals, I haven't broken down, and uh, I wouldn't mind breaking down an ostrich or a bear or something like that. I think that would be fun. Uh, I've done deer, done you know a couple of you know, wild game and whatnot. But I think a bear would be different. And an ostrich, I love ostrich meat, so I'd love to see how that looks on the table. Sure, it's just a big bird. From the stuff that you have done, you know, pig to cow, deer, is it all roughly kind of the same process? Like you kind of go about it the same way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're you're definitely, when I break down a, a beef, it, I have to associate it with the cow, with the, with the, the hog, just so that I can kind of figure out where it is. Because I know everything on the hog. 
and it's basically the same on the beef. It's just a lot larger. So you can get more intricate with the cuts and, and you know, pull the tri-tip out, uh, the, the kanya out, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very relatively the same. And you mentioned you guys, you know, sometimes animals in the walking kind of dry age naturally, and, and you have some dry agers too. Is there a limit to how long you want to dry age stuff? Because there's people out there that do crazy stuff where it's like, 200 some days i just i mean if you got the space and the in the inventory to sit on that then go ahead and do it um but i go through product too fast so if i get 30 days out of that you know plus we're a small operation you know, those are those guys that are dry aging for that long they have coolers and coolers and coolers of, you know stacks just they're sitting on you know a million dollars of inventory in your experience though is there like a sweet spot for dry aging? Is there a spot where it's like, there's not too much of a difference? Yeah, I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still a new to the dry aging game, I guess, from the shop's perspective. You know, we've only been open six months, so we really haven't been able to do anything that much. And before that, I, I mean, I only dry aged here and there. So, so that's something I'm still learning. If somebody wanted to, if somebody was like, hey, could you do a steak, dry age it for like 60 days upon request? Is that something that you would do or not really, not enough space? Not one steak. I would have, they would have to buy the whole loin, which you know, if they commit to the whole loin before it's dry aged and before I trim it, before I take the bones off and blah, blah, blah. Then yeah, I'll do that. But one steak, that's a lot of, a lot of work and labor and you know, it's not worth what I'd have to charge them in my eyes anyway. But people come in and they want their, spe- you know, they want to be specific. Uh, some guy, I got a guy comes in and he wants, he picks out short ribs on the bone and picks out one Wagyu steak and then uh, one like dry aged Angus. And then he has me grind it and I just, I ring it up before I grind it. And then, you know, he's paying an average of $38 a pound for ground beef because that's the blend he wants and he wants to make the burgers that way. With kind of the the pricing and you guys open and then pretty much, I mean, right after you open, like inflation starts to kind of run rampant. Have you seen inflation directly affect you guys? I'm just now having to raise my prices, honestly, slowly. Uh, So I'm finally seeing it a little bit here and there. We've been pretty good about keeping our prices the same, but now it's finally affecting me a little bit. Um, So, you know, like the... Smoked sausages, I had to raise the price on the other day. Our pastrami is going to go up slowly. Um, things like that. It's just, I don't want to, but I have to. With your shop and, and as you get more and more experience and everything too, is butcher apprenticeship something that you'd want to do down the line for, you know, kind of passing on that knowledge? Or I think it's something we kind of have to, honestly. You know, in order to get the butchers that we need to expand, we're going to need those guys that, that want to. Want to be passionate and want to learn. I just took on one person the other day. She's only working two days a week, but she's a bartender, but really wants to learn how to be a butcher. So I was like, all right, well, you're going to start out doing a lot of prep work and, you know, and making cabbage rolls and learning how to do pickles and portioning and cleaning. And then when I feel comfortable, I'll put a knife in your hand and see, you know, teach you a little bit. But you're not going to learn how to cut meat for two or three years, you know. So. And that's the kind of commitment I need to make sure that we get the people that really want to, you know, learn this this craft. Is that the best way for someone to start? Is to link up with like a local butcher shop, essentially? Because I mean, I I think there is like a a mastery butcher certification school or something like that, but I couldn't tell how like legit or how like useful that would be. I mean, there's there's programs at Ohio State uh, in their Department of Agriculture on meat cutting and meat science and things like that. And it's more for mass production butchery, you know, assembly line, things like that. They have a kill floor and they go through and teach you how to butcher from head to toe and what to do with it. But it's also for mass production. You know, that's not a, a local craft butchery. Do you think, you know, the neighborhood butcher shop can make a comeback? You know, like, I mean, I know that's something that you're trying to do. And, and obviously I think you believe that to a, a certain extent. I think, you know, it, it's already started. I mean, if you look at Machularia, it's been open for almost two years now. And then Tony Tanner over at Butcher and Grocers working on his fourth location. Um, I feel like it's already started. You know, it's trending that way. And uh, I'm glad to see it. 
is the the butcher community a supportive one or is everybody kind of in their own little corners or I, from what I gather, we're all supportive. Like I've been into Machularia and, you know, and Tony Tanner and I have a good relationship. I can text them whenever I want. And then uh, the, the guys over at Machularia, same way. Um, Saddleberg, I know those, I know a couple of guys over there. They come into the shop here and there. I get uh, managers from Wylands coming in here a lot. Um, so yeah, I'd say everybody's pretty supportive. I know I can call them up and, you know, oh, even the guys over in North Country, Charcuterie, Duncan and James over there, they, you know, they constantly send business my way or I'll send business their way. Uh, or if I have questions, I can ask them. So, yeah, yeah, I, we're all, at least we, we have to be. I asked Stefan Medias this when he was on the podcast because he's a big charcuterie guy, just like yourself. Assemble the ideal charcuterie board. Uh, okay. Well, I would start with the Culatello I make. Because it's insanely good. The Kulachella, Copa, and Duya, I'll throw all those on the boards. How many meats am I doing? What? The average board is like three meats and two or three cheeses? I would do the Anduya, the Kulachella, and then probably my country pate or or the, the chicken liver mousse that I make. Uh, put those on there. Humble fog, goat cheese, some tem, um, and then uh, some kind of good, like, Gouda or cheddar that has crystals in it that's been aged for like a couple of years. I like dried fruits on mine and, and some candy nuts as well. Uh, and I usually either make a babash or, or a focaccia, but I also have a spicy mustard I like to put out there. Um, yeah, you want to have a, 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 I like to have a creamy cheese, a nice salty cheese, and then either like a blue or something in the middle. That's where that humble salt comes in. Yeah. That sounds good to me. Pickles, always pickles, always pickles. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, anything acidic, so pickles would take care of that. Yeah, I always, you know, we make our own pickles here in our own crowd. So we put pickles on every charcuterie board uh, and mustard. Uh, I grew up eating liverwurst and onion and Swiss cheese with my dad on Sundays. <laughs> You've been in the food scene for a long time in Columbus. How has it changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to change and where do you see it headed? Well, it's changed a lot. Keeping up with the new plating styles and the trends as far as the culinary aspect and the nice fine dining. You know, like if you look at restaurants like Veritas, they're doing their, their stuff. They're pretty much at the cutting edge of what's going on right now. Um, Dan Campbell over there is doing this thing. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I can't even keep up with that, honestly. I'm still old school. I'm so old school. Like, I'm doing a, a wine dinner on Wednesday at Dewey Meach Day for $100 a person, five courses. You know, I got pate, my country pate on there. We're doing pork briquettes, you know, just good, simple stuff, but it's nice. But I'm not, I, I don't do any of the gastro stuff, or I don't do use any chemicals, or beans, or dots, or any of that pearls. <laughs> that I can't keep up with. Um, the way food's going right now, I, actually, with the pandemic and as many restaurants that closed down, I feel like that was necessary. There was an overpopulation of people just wanting to open restaurants because they had the money and had no idea what to do. So those people kind of got weeded out by natural selection. Um, and I feel like that was necessary uh, because the, the strong will survive, you know, and and those, those are the people that should be doing what they're doing right now. Uh, as far as where it's going, uh, I just, you know, once again, the people that are making the right decisions and, and being smart about it, treating their employees well and paying them well, you know, that's things that definitely need to happen is the, the pay structure in this industry really needs to increase. And uh, people, we need to start paying what they're worth, not what we can afford. I mean, we can't afford it. We shouldn't. Um, that's something I feel really strongly about, the quality of life. That's one reason I got out of being a chef. I was working 70 hours a week, you know, every day, 14 hours a day. And that sucks. You can't, you can't do anything. My guys here, we work four 10-hour shifts, you know. So they work their 40, four days, they get three days off. You know, if it's a busy week like this week, there might be some exceptions here. And there. Plus, I only have three guys on my whole staff. You know, it's me, Gabby, Donnie, Chelsea, and my my niece, yeah. <laughs> so three full-time employees, two part-time employees, but everybody gets paid a decent wage. 
Um, and when I can afford to do more, I will. But uh, yeah, I think the, the pay and quality of life is something that really needs to be pushed and, uh, and, and looked at hard. Do you consider yourself now a butcher or a chef? I don't feel like I've reached butcher status yet. You know, I, I tell people I'm a butcher, but I'm still a chef at heart. You know, I'll always be a chef. I'm always Chef Dan. Uh, I mean, that's just what people call me. Yeah, and even when they call me on the phone, I'm people I don't know. They're like, hey, Chef, how's it going? So I think, you know, I don't think I'll ever be a full-fledged butcher. I think it's always going to be a little of both. What's next for you? I mean, I know you have a lot of grand ideas of, of stuff you want to do. Obviously, you know, working on the liquor license. Yeah, we're working on that. We're working on uh, shipping, shipping program so that we can start shipping. Uh, I've done a little bit here and there. Uh, I got to get my charcuterie up and running. That program is the next one to be rolled out so that we can start selling our charcuterie. And then once that's up and running, then I'm going to try to, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to try to work on the longish concept. I'd like to see that up and running. I think that'd be a nice thing that would do well in this city. And I don't know if you know anything about longish. It's a Hungarian fried dough made with a, it's a potato yeast dough that's fried like a funnel cake. But then it's topped with garlic, sour cream, and farmer's cheese. Uh, and then from there, you can do a ton of different variations and almost make it like pizza-like. So it'd be a Hungarian-style pizza. And uh, I can't, you know, I don't think that's good. I did that at Platform for a little bit towards the end. And that, it sold really well. I was selling out every time I went So I think that's something I want to work on next year. So this next question comes from culinary director Paul Chung over at Cezanne Hospitality out in San Francisco. What kind of responsibility do you feel restaurants need to play with the carbon footprint left behind from the meat industry? Well, I think everybody needs to reduce waste. One thing, you know, and that's one thing we work on here is we don't you know, we don't throw anything out. We turn it into something. You know, even the scraps from the stock, I've been, uh, I've been saving that up so that I can roll out a dog food for for like a gourmet dog food, and then we're not wasting. Anything. I think that's something we all need to work on is uh, creating zero waste or having systems in place to to deal with that waste. And, and you know, whether it be where they compost it and people take it away and use it for their gardens and stuff like that, or you know, recycling whatever you can recycle, reduce all the plastic that's being used everywhere and trying to reuse stuff instead of having one time use for everything. Um, that's stuff we practice every day here. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? How are they going to help train the next generation? What are, what are we going to do to get the young people involved in everybody cooking, doing things with shit? What's, what's happening? I feel like the young people aren't as interested in carrying on their culture and their, uh, their legacy, their heritage. How do we do that? How do we leave that? How do we move that forward? This next question comes from one of our listeners. What's the one thing someone should look for when buying a steak at a non-butcher shop, uh, like a grocery store meat department? Well, the first thing I would look for is just the marbling, marbling and packaged date. You know, they always have a packed date when it was actually packed. So I wouldn't do anything past two days and look at the marbling, you know, the color of the meat. And uh, I haven't been to a grocery store to buy meat. <laughs> but when I did, that's what I looked for. I saw one thing where people were saying, you know, when it's packaged, like there shouldn't be any like, like if it puffs up, that's like a no-no. Yeah. That means it's been out of temperature for too long or something happened. It's oxidized and there's some gases. So this uh, next set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? Thomas Keller, honestly. Um, when I was first starting out, uh, the first chef I ever worked for that I ever taught me, Pat McNamara, he's in uh, Savannah, Georgia. You know? uh, he was awesome, but he always he, he threw the book at me, basically threw the French laundry at me and said, read it. And then we started quoting things out of it. I didn't understand what he was quoting, so I had to read the book. And reading that book kind of opened my eyes and, and it inspired me like, so much to the point where I cooked every recipe out of it uh, until I got it perfect. Um, and, and that's what we did there. We kind of had. And there being at Hyde Park, Metropolitan Seafood Grill, that's kind of like where we all, we and the group of guys that have so much contact with their still in the industry, we kind of just worked our way through that book. And, and we wanted to be the best chefs in the city. And we wanted to be the best team in the city. 
and we felt like that was the way to do it. We put through that, Charlie Trotter at the time, Charlie Palmer, Chef Daniel Tony Bernane. <laughs> I loved reading his books. One of his, you know, that first book that he ever came out with, Kitchen Confidential, you know, and reading that book as I, as I was a, my first sous chef job, he's in that book, they're talking about having sex with servers over the flower sacks and things like that. Like, get you. It's like, yeah, it's almost like being a rock star. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Sharp. What's one restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Scenario I usually give, you know, a person gets stuck at the Columbus airport and they reach out to you. Hey, you know, stuck here for the evening. Where should I go eat? I always tell people to go to Press Grill because it's an iconic restaurant in Columbus. And, you know, it's a good hole in the wall, but great burgers. You know, I work there too, but it's one of the few restaurants I actually go back to on a regular basis because I love food so much. Um, I like, you know, for that or pizza, I tell people to go to JT's. Uh, I really like their pizza. <laughs> I wasn't a big thin crust guy until I had their crust. I was more of a New York style, foldable, blah, 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 or Chicago. Like I love a good Chicago Giordano's or Toritas, you know, that's good stuff. Uh, fine dining, the money, you know, the refectory is something you always have to experience at least once. G. Michaels, I'd always tell people to go to G. Michaels or Barcelona easily, you know, especially when uh, Josh was over there. Yeah, those are some of the restaurants I would tell. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Hungary for one, you know, I, I can't wait to go to Budapest and Sega, visit throughout Europe. Uh, I would love to eat at Alinea one day, uh, but who wouldn't? Um, I want to go to a real Hungarian butcher shop. I want to go to France somewhere, uh, and see Paul Bocuse's restaurant, eat there. You know, Ratatouille is one of my favorite things. <laughs> so Thomas Keller, yeah, I haven't been to French Laundry or Bouchon, but those are definitely in the bucket list too. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Craziest thing. I mean, I've seen so many crazy things. One Saturday night at Cap City in Kahana, I'm working saute one and saute two reaches over me and punches the uh, pantry guy right in the face in the middle of the rush. I'm like trying to cook and they're like decking it out. What the fuck is going on here? Like, that was crazy. I saw a guy... Gabby pushed one of our owners from Explorers Club into the steam kettle one day as they were arguing. And you don't want to see Gabby angry. <laughs> uh, I saw a guy throw, take his shoes off and walk out and throw his shoes in the stock pot before he left and walked out. Uh, seeing a guy cut his hand so bad it left a river of blood through the kitchen. And then he passed out and hit his head on the table and cracked that open as well. So many things. I said the fact I said. Oscars on fire once. <laughs> Explorers Club, I set that place on fire once almost as well, yeah. The smoker. <laughs> it caught on fire in the back and caught the tree out back on fire. We had five fire trucks in there to put it out on the Sunday brunch. Yeah, Oscars, I put the stock on overnight and left it on full blast. And then it came in in the morning and there was just black smoke everywhere. And the pot had, all the liquid had reduced out, the pot had burned and melted a hole in the bottom of the pot and infused to the burners and it smelled like burnt metal throughout the whole kitchen when i got there at four o'clock <laughs> everybody just laughed at me like you're in so much fucking trouble right now food or drink guilty pleasure is there anything that you know that's terrible for you but you just can't help yourself candy fast food anything like that Urban and liver. Yesterday, my gout acted up for the first time in a year or so. And it's because I've been drinking bourbon and eating, you know, liverwurst and things like that here. It's just, I had to stay at home all day with my foot rested, drink my tart cherry juice. Favorite Instagram account you follow? George Donnelly. He's a butcher out in the UK. He does a lot of cool videos. And I, uh, this style of butchery is a lot that I model myself my style. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, you know, looking back on your career, you could kind of point to this dish as like the moment you knew you could be a chef professionally. I mean, that was when I was 16. It was uh, stuffed shells for this girl. And then that's a, that was the panty dropper. And then the next day, her dad ate all the leftovers cold and was like, who cooked this? This is the best thing I've ever had. And it was over since then. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were... 
Was there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you from him? Yeah, when he went head to head with Eric Repair in the kitchen. You know, when he was working, the, I think he was working the, the meat station and then Eric was working the fish station. And Eric, classic French chef, everything's perfect on time. No, he's not dirty at all, you know. It reminded me of when I would work next to Richard at the inspector. You know, I'm working the fish station. I'm trying to keep up with him. And Richard's just like, Whenever you're ready, I'm ready. You know, drinking his espresso or whatever. He'd just be like, waiting on you. <laughs> Go fuck yourself for sure. <laughs> Never said that to him, but I wanted to hear. <laughs> Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug all your stuff. Yeah, we're at HungarianButcher.com. Instagram at HungarianButcher. Same with uh, Facebook. We don't have a Twitter. We don't have a, I don't know what other medias are. <laughs> TikTok, we don't have that or anything like that, so. Um, yeah, that's where they can find me now. And, you know, we're going to probably do some kind of YouTube stuff for like cooking, uh, videos, and whatnot, butchery, how to videos. And then you guys are open Tuesday through Sunday. We're open 11 to seven Tuesday through Saturday, 10 to four on Sundays. And we're closed on Monday. And you guys do taco Tuesday kits. Taco Tuesday, every Tuesday, uh, it ranges from 25 to $35 per kit depending on the protein. Tomorrow will probably be 35 because we're doing shrimp ceviche. And then Wednesdays, you're over at uh, Duomichi, right? This Wednesday, I am, but that's just the one Wednesday. We were doing every Wednesday, but then that kind of tapered off. So we're just, this is our final dinner, $100 per person, reservation only. I think there's like 10 spots left. And more stuff you guys will announce on the way too as well, I'm sure, whenever it's time. And then the wine comes in, you'll know when I'm allowed to start selling charcuterie, you'll definitely know. Got some good good things coming up. I'm looking forward to the summertime and sling a lot of sausage. Super excited for you guys to open when you, you guys finally did. And it sounds like everything's been amazing for the first six months. You know, we haven't been cooking at home that much, but we're going to be moving closer to the area too as well in a, in a couple months. So it'll make it a little bit easier for us to stop in and, and get some stuff too. It's it's a little bit of a, a haul for us right now, unless we're kind of already in the area. So you'll definitely be seeing more of us in the shop for, for picking up stuff. But it's awesome to see the success and the response from the city for a local butcher shop. Not too many of you guys around. So me and my buddy always joke because he's you know from South Carolina and he's like, the grocery store system up here is terrible. You know, we don't have this one stop place. It's like, yeah, you could go to, you know, Kroger and get some stuff and you can go to Giant Eagle and they have some good stuff, but not other stuff. And then like Whole Foods is, it's all kind of weird and all over the place. You have to go almost go to like three, four grocery stores to get everything that you need. There's no one stop thing. So, but yeah, it's awesome to see, you know, what you guys got going on, what you're building and looking forward to you guys continuing expansion and, and everything that you got in the works. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, all time and money. So. Yeah, if there's anything you ever need from us, feel free to reach out. We try and support everybody as much as we can, uh, anybody that comes on the podcast. So, but yeah, definitely looking forward to all the future stuff that you got going on. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate everything. It's fun. I had a good time. A big thanks again to Dan for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days at the butcher shop there. Some of the noises you can hear in the background is I'm doing some prep for one of the Taco Tuesday kits that they were doing. So if you haven't had a chance to try one of those, feel free. Um, they usually post about it on Instagram, and then you can call in and reserve and then pick one up. Like he said, they're going to have Hungarian wines once they kind of get their liquor license um, finalized too as well, and different charcuterie cuts and a whole bunch of different cool stuff. So it's a it's a really awesome situation. Uh, super happy for Dan that you know his passion project is having a lot of success too as well. So again, follow them on Instagram at The Hungarian Butcher. Um, you can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. We use Twitter mostly for announcements on the release of the podcast. Facebook, not so much. It's just kind of tied in the Instagram. But make sure to follow us on Instagram, too, as well. Uh, that's kind of where we put out different uh, food photos uh, that we've had, but also different updates on the podcast. Uh, every week, episodes come out on Thursdays as our release date there. Um, we might have uh, a few other kind of little special episodes coming up, um, too, as well. Some kind of one-off things that I'm working on. So stay tuned for that. Make sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, all the platforms. You can find us. Just search Spoon Mob and make sure to follow and subscribe so all the new episodes go straight into your podcast player as soon as they're released. We also have a YouTube channel. We release the episodes on YouTube about uh, one week 
in arrears. So, um, you know, the episode comes out through all the podcast platforms there first, and then the following week it'll be on YouTube. It's just the audio, but some people prefer to use YouTube for their their podcast playing. So that option's there too as well. But uh, you can check out the website, spoonmob.com, different profiles on different chefs, uh, all the links to all the episodes, contact information, different food photos, all that stuff is up there too as well. But that's kind of it for this week. Uh, if you're interested in kind of learning a little bit more about butchery and stuff, I would highly recommend there's this uh, little docu-series on Amazon Prime. It's called Handcrafted. It's done by Bona Petite. There's like seven episodes. They're all 20 minutes, except for I think the last one on Soba, which is like 30, 35 minutes. But they're super interesting. Each one is kind of a chef making different products. So there's one where they break down a cow. There's one where they break down a lamb, uh, break down a tuna. Um, then there's one where they do a bunch of pasta and they kind of explain the different shapes and different techniques on how you create, you know, differences between ravioli and tortellini and all that stuff and, and different doughs. So it's super interesting. I would highly recommend that checking that out. And again, it's on Amazon prime. It's from like 2017, but it's like seven episodes or like 20, 25 minutes mostly. So, but that's it for this week. Again, appreciate everybody listening. Hope everybody had a great holiday weekend uh, last week, more episodes on the way. And we will talk to you guys next Thursday.